All right, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 1. Philippians 1. And I'm going to continue a message I started last week called Love Like Family. Uh, we are family. And um, God is most pleased when we are what he made us to be. And uh, we can say it this way. We can say the church is most like the church when it's a family. The church is most like a church when it's a family. And uh, I've been sharing 15 ways in which the Bible gives for us this picture, this idea of family in his people. Now, keep in mind, I'm not even touching the Old Testament here. Uh, when you look at through the Old Testament theme, you see God is drawing to himself a people, that God has a people, and they are to operate as a family under his divine rule. And uh, I think that starts even with, uh, in creation, Adam and Eve. Uh, he created a family under his authority. And I think from there, we see where the theme of family, God's family, seems to permeate uh, uh, the Old Testament and certainly the New Testament uh, in the creation of the local church. Uh, it's not incidental. It's not isolated. Uh, I give 15 reasons, not because I want to, you know, like shock and awe, like I'm just going to just show you in so many different ways it's undeniable. I, I think it's just this running theme that we see from so many different angles. It's so beautiful. And I want to share those with you so that in your mind, you can have that same understanding of the church being like a family. I think when we see what the church is made to be uh, and we strive to be that, God is glorified. And I think God uses that to call people to himself. People want a family. People want people that will care about them and love them, highs and lows and everything in between. And that's awesome because that's what God created us to be. And we looked at four of those reasons last time, and we saw how important it was because in the three passages I shared last week, um, there in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, uh, we see that God has called us to walk worthy of this calling to himself. This calling into Christ is a calling into family. And he says, now walk worthy of that, not just as individuals, but as a church family. And being, with, being part of a family comes with wonderful blessings, okay? People who will walk with you through uh, those very hard times, those tragic times, um, but being part of a family is not just enjoying all the blessings, it's also taking on the commitments and the responsibilities that come with that. Or we could say uh, the responsibility and the accountability of being part of a family. And there are some tough parts about it, and we'll talk about those. Uh, but I'm reminded of uh, an African proverb I read recently that said this, if you want to travel fast, go alone, but if you want to travel far, go together. And I think that's true. And we travel together on this journey through life. Uh, we've already looked at several of those ways. And we're going to remind you of those in just a moment. But I, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. And we're going to just look through chapter 2 and verse 4. I don't have time to really take and break this down because this is a topical sermon. Meaning, I'm covering a topic. But... I think this passage, like we looked at Acts chapter 2 last week in uh, verses 42 through 47 and saw the early church, how it functioned like a family, and this deep care and concern and love growing together in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, it says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or else I am absent, I may hear of your affairs. And we're saying the things... I'm hearing about what's going on there at the church at Philippi because Paul was currently in prison while writing this letter, okay? He couldn't be there, but he was getting reports back from co-laborers. And this is what he says, I want to hear that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You guys have one spirit. You guys, are hearts are knit together and your minds are knit together, meaning you guys have chosen to work together and all go the same direction on purpose. Why? striving together, laboring together for the faith of the gospel, not only in your own growth and understanding of the gospel, but so that others would come to faith in 
Jesus Christ as well. And he says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is a proof of perdition on them, but to you it's of salvation and that from God. He's acknowledging that there's going to be some challenges ahead, notably people who don't like you. (laughs) They don't like Christianity. They're trying to stamp it out. I think it's so important that especially Christians be unified as we go into these more challenging times in our own context. Things are just going to get tougher. And he says, uh, he says, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Uh, being persecuted is part of the Christian experience. Uh, though largely in America we've escaped that, you go across the world and they've been doing it for years. As things get a little tougher, it's really probably quite amazing to the rest of the world when we start saying, oh, it's getting harder for Christians. You know, they're, they're mocking us and, and what we believe about the Bible. And they're like, welcome to the club, guys. We've been doing this for years and years. <laughs> We've been imprisoned and our lives have been at stake. You guys are getting a little uncomfortable and you guys think the, the sky is falling. Uh, hey, w- welcome to the party because we've been doing this for a while now. And uh, uh, I, I read somewhere, uh, or I had a person shared with me, said that the church in Russia had been praying for, uh, during the Cold War years, when things were a lot more restrictive for Christians, said they were praying that uh, persecution would come to America. They said so the American Christians could become more pure and more focused on Jesus. Isn't that amazing? They say, hey, it's been good for us. It's hard, but it's good. You guys need that. I guess their prayers are starting to be answered in that respect. He says, um, he goes in verse 30, you have the, uh, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. He goes, uh, you've heard that I've been thrown in prison. This is par for the course when you serve Jesus, okay? And then chapter 2, verse 1, and keep in mind that the book of Philippians is a book about joy. And you think, joy, why are you talking about persecution so much? Because he wants them to experience joy in every context of life. Not just when it's good, right? Not just when it's easy, but he says, I want you to experience joy. And so then he talks about what are some of the things which will bring joy. And he starts talking about unity. Striving together is going to create joy in the Christian life. Okay, isolation, not joy. Unification, that does produce joy. And then chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but on the interest of others. He goes, you want to have a joyful Christian life? Then live it with others, with intentional unity. Uh, all of you binding your hearts and your lives together to move forward for the sake of the gospel. That's how you're going to even maintain your joy when things get really, really tough. These are excellent words for us today. And um, we get a chance to walk that out in our local church context. We get a chance. Listen, we have to start creating the deep relationships now that as things get tougher, we're prepared for it. Because we're going to need each other in an even greater way. And so we talked about some of these things. We talked about the first four things. The Bible refers to family over 200 times. The church as family, not just family, but the church as family. There's a command to love like family. We saw that in the two words he uses in Romans chapter 12. Philadelphia, Philostorgos, love like family, love like brothers. Uh, how he refers to his people as a household. Remember, the house of God is not the church building. It's the household of God, meaning the family is what he's trying to say uh, we also see the images that he uses. First Peter chapter 2, chosen generation, a priesthood, a nation, a people. All those are singular. He said, you, plural, he says, are now this one thing, singular. And I could imagine if Peter were standing here today, he would say, I don't know how many other ways to say it, guys. <laughs> a people, a nation, a priesthood, you guys are in this together, okay? I want you to see it that way. Uh, and of course, the, when he uses the picture of the human body, uh, human parts do not do well apart from the body. They tend to, you know, die and not survive. And so that's why it's so important. So let's hit a couple of these other things. And I understand this is a lot of information in a short period of time, but I hope you'll come on this journey with me. The fifth thing is how the Bible describes our sonship as being part of a larger family. And I think one of the most beautiful 
passages on this is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, for both he who sanctifies and he who is being, and those who are being sanctified are all of one. He's saying, Jesus came to make us one. And we have a, we have a oneness with him, but we also have a oneness with each other. And this is what he says, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Uh, there were some times when I'm sure my sister wanted to say, that kid that's walking next to me, he is not my family. I make no claims about Jeremy being my brother. Probably wanted to avoid having to claim me at any point. I think my probably uh, my parents did, and I know my own children did it a few times. I've embarrassed them, you know, uh, with my dad jokes and things like that. I can be a little goofy at times. I like to have fun. And so there are times you're like, oh, dad. <laughs> it's like, this is my kid right here. <laughs> Say hi, say hi, Alexis, to everybody. I'm uh, her dad. Uh, so I just really leaned into it. Uh, but you know, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brethren. He's not ashamed to say, hey, we're brothers. We're part of a family. And that's a really beautiful thought, how he does it. And, and again, uh, the idea is just not, well, he's talking to multiple people, so he uses a plural. The idea is like he calls them brethren. Hey, we're brothers, and I'm not ashamed. Hey, if Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother, uh, we should not be ashamed to call each other brother, amen, and to live life in that mindset. He says, uh, goes on to say, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. The gathered people, the gathered brethren. Uh, Of course, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 talks about how he will be the firstborn among many brethren, (laughs) So this is a really beautiful point in which God says, Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is the head of the church. But he also calls us brother and says, we're all brothers together in Christ Jesus. Uh, In Galatians 4, Romans chapter 5, he talks about our adoption in Christ Jesus. Do you know that there's no only, only child situations with God? Uh, Maybe you were born as an only child, you know, our uh, I've heard some of them say, well, there's only, my parents only had one child because they decided when they got the perfect child, they were going to quit. And I came, you know, here I am. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's probably true. But, but here's the thing is, is there's no such thing as an only child in God's adoption plan. <laughs> He's adopted us as a family. And so he talks about sons and children and family in that context because he wants to see us as all of us being in him together. Uh, John Piper, I think, said it really beautifully. He said, I don't think Jesus died to create unattached, free-floating Christians. I think he died to create the church where real, true individuality of every believer comes into its own. That's a very important thought. He says, really, individuality makes most sense in the context of unity. You say, no, those are opposites. But listen to what he says. The more disconnected we are from a local church, the more confused we will be about who we are and who God made us to be. We find our true individual selves in relationship to others. That's how God created us. He says in 1 John 3, what manner of love God has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God together. Uh, Interesting, I, I was reading an article uh, by someone by the name of Amy, Amy Medina. hope I'm pronouncing that right, maybe Medina. Uh, she was a missionary for most of her life, grew up on the mission field, an American, uh, uh, born into a family that was American, uh, but grew up on the mission field. And uh, then she became a missionary herself for many years, and then she came back to the U.S., lives in California, and she was really surprised by the individual uh, individualistic nature of Westerners because she had grown up in a culture that was uh, very much saw themselves as being corporate together, a community. He said it was really kind of shocking to her. And she writes, uh, quoting someone by the name of Dwayne Elmers in his book, Cross-Cultural Connections, where, whereas independence is an important value to Americans and Westerners in general, interdependence is the way of most societies of the world. And think about the context in which Jesus, or uh, I should say, the New Testament is written, including the words of Jesus. It was written into a context that was very interdependent. Communities were very dependent upon one another. This is the context in which the New Testament that you read was written. Now, we oftentimes read it in 
our mindset and see, oh, this is about me and my faith journey. Whereas when it was written, it was written into a context very much of the Jesus and we, not the Jesus and me. And I think we need to see it from the New Testament perspective in which it was written, the context in which it was written to really understand it. But there's more reasons, okay? Another reason is Paul's pastoral instruction to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, Timothy is a young man, probably around 30 years old when he's pastoring in Ephesus. And what Paul says to him is, do not harshly rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. He's like, hey, if you want to understand how you should relate to the people in your church as a pastor, Timothy, the best way you can do that is just see them like family. Treat the older men like they're, like they're your father. He's like, well, isn't he the leader of the church as the pastor? He's like, but there's more than that. It's a family. He said the best way you can relate to people is, Timothy, just treat them like family. Why? Because that's the best kind of leadership there is. That's the best kind of influence I can have that you can have on other people is simply loving them like family. I mentioned Philemon uh, and uh, the book of Philemon and Onesimus, the runaway slave, uh, last week. But something that's very interesting as you read this uh, I encourage you to read it this afternoon. It's very short, uh, just one chapter. And um, he tells uh, Philemon, he says, although I could have talked to you from a place of authority, because remember, Paul is an apostle. He carries the full weight of us uh, being an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had been trained by Jesus Christ himself. Uh, he had uh, been given the word of God uh, through the Holy Spirit, allowing him to pen uh, God's very words. And so he had authority to tell. He said, Philemon, I have the power to tell you, just do it. He says, but instead, he says, I appeal to you as my brother. Isn't that powerful? Paul said, the, most, the, the greatest influence I have in your life is not just being an apostle. It's that you're my brother in Christ. So I'm asking you on behalf of Onesimus to receive him back and not punish him. Why? Because we're family. That is so powerful. And I think it's very instructive for us as well. Then we also see Jesus very teaching about his followers being family. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, he answered them. They said, hey, your family's here to see you. And this is what Jesus' response was in Matthew 12. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. He wasn't... He wasn't saying he didn't care about his family because we know on the cross he actually made provision for his mother to be taken care of by John, which again, that's a whole other point I could make that he says, hey, John, take her in as your mother because you're family. <laughs> um, but he said this, who is it that is really bound together as a, as a family? He's like, those who have joined their hearts together to do the will of my father, which is in heaven. Man, just what a powerful family picture here. Again, he wasn't saying he didn't care about his brothers. As a matter of fact, uh, his brothers end up coming to faith in Christ. At one point, we see they very clearly don't believe in Jesus. After the resurrection, we very clearly see. And, and two of them became very important leaders in the, the church. Um, and so we see, though, Jesus sees it as a family. We also see it as in the fact that 1 John makes it a proof of genuine active faith. Uh, a person who's really a believer, it says, is going to have this bond of love with his family. Uh, he says it in a lot of different ways. Chapter 2 says, if you don't love, uh, if, if you don't love your brother, you're a child of the devil. He says in 1 John 3 that it's an evidence of true saving faith. Chapter 3, verse 14, if you say you love God and you uh, you must also love your brother or you're a liar. I, I, I don't think I could get away with that. <laughs> it's like, John, you said some things I don't think I can get away with. But I, he's saying, hey, if a person says, oh, I love God, but he doesn't have active love for, another, for other believers, he says, you're a liar. You're not telling the truth. Um, I, I, we don't 
have a written test that, like that says, are you having active faith? If not, you're a big liar. <laughs> we don't do that. But, but John says this is God's perspective. You're not real if you're not loving actively. Um, he says, if you love God, God, you must also love your brother. Or again, you are a liar. That's chapter 1 John 4. And so we say, well, what exactly are you talking about? When you say love, what do you mean? Well, he tells us in 1 John chapter 3. He says, if you see that your brother has needs, needs this worldly goods, and you have it, but you, you don't help them, he says, and you shut up your heart instead from them, how is God's love dwelling in you? It's a very practical thing, meeting real needs that people have. Um, and then this one uh, we've already really dealt with uh, when we looked at the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Uh, the church functioned like a family. Uh, they were meeting together. They were meeting each other's needs. Uh, they, it says they continued in doctrine and fellowship together. Uh, they, they loved one another, and they met together to learn and grow together. And so very, very... Again, I encourage you to read that passage. But then you have James chapter 2. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in, in peace, be warmed and filled. Like, oh, God bless you, brother. I hope God meets your needs. <laughs> it says, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body. He says, what profit is that? The whole book of James is about what's called dead faith and living faith. Dead faith means fake faith. It's not real. It's people who say it, but it's not real. Professing, but not possessing genuine faith. He said, hey, here's some things that indicate your faith is fake, and here's the things that say your faith is real. And he says, one of the things that show it's real is when you see people that are brothers and sisters that have need, and you meet them. <laughs> you actually give them the things that they need. And it's interesting. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, Paul's dealing with the issue of widows in the church. Now, uh, this was um, a society in which uh, widows could easily be overlooked and starved to death. I mean, they really could. So the early church said, hey, we're going to take it upon ourselves for those who don't have any family, earthly family to take care of them. We're going to, to love them. They're our family. We're going to take care of them. But he makes this point. He says, listen, if a person says that they're a believer and yet they don't take care of their own widows or their own parents or the widows in their family group. He's like, uh, they're worse than an unbeliever. He's like, there's kind of this double um, responsibility. He says, if you have a mother who doesn't have any means, you should take care of her. I mean, we would all understand that, right? Uh, taking care of people in your own family that have needs. He goes, but if you're a Christian, how much more? Because why? You're connected in two different ways, your church family and your physical family. And then he says, and if, you have, if they have no physical family, then the church is to take care of them. Why? Because they're spiritual family. So he makes that connection and, and binds them kind of together there. But we also see the command for unity. Uh, we just looked at a really good passage there in Philippians chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. But there's other ones. If you look at John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that God would take Jews and Gentiles and make them all one in Jesus Christ. It was a really big deal. And he says, I don't pray this uh, just for my own sake. I'm praying this so that you'll hear it and understand what my heart is. Part of my mission is to bring a people together into one and they will care for each other. And then he starts talking about love, so that they will love each other. They will love you like I love you, and they will love each other the way you love them. And there's this picture. It's almost like this. In the Trinity, there's what we call intertrinitarian love. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, they all love each other. They operate sort of like a family, individuals in unity. And he says, Jesus says in John 17, we're going to invite, or God is inviting us into that family he's allowing us to come and be part of that and to experience that unity in a family and that's a very beautiful picture why is it so important that we live it out is because it pictures the trinity it's a pretty serious thing in the eyes of god it pictures who god is of course ephesians 4 when we looked at the book of ephesians it says that we should give every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, I mentioned Amy uh, Medina earlier, uh, spent most of her life on the mission field. And this is what she says, interestingly. She goes, in America, we celebrate independence in a myriad of ways. Unique names for our children, self-designed tattoos. We ask tiny children what they want to be when they grow up because, you know, it's their choice, of course. We wear T-shirts that say, you be you. We customize our burritos and our frozen yogurt. In its extreme form, society encourages individuals to cast off tradition, church, and even family in pursuit of self-expression. Now, here's the thing is, is we're kind of insiders to this. We, we've grown up into this. She didn't. And she came back in as like, wow, how much different. She grew up in a society that was highly interdependent. And she says, this idea of, of, of expression of self to the hurt of everyone around me, uh, who cares what everyone thinks? I, I'm going to be me, you be you, and I'll be me. He said, we didn't operate that way because we realized we needed each other. We were all in this together. I thought it, it was very interesting. Uh, matter of fact, I was reading, doing a little reading at a place called Hofstadt Insights. And it's basically how companies can understand their corporate culture and how it's different in, because of different cultures' values. And so he, he has these metrics, these six metrics that he uses to, to kind of gauge strengths. Well, I don't want to say strengths and weaknesses. I'm going to say differences between cultures. And one of them was the idea of individuality versus more of a corporate thinking. And he says, uh, she grew up in Tanzania. And she said uh, their interdependence number, or say independence number, was very low, meaning they were very community-oriented. And if you look at the metrics, the U.S. has a score of 91, which is the most individualistic society on the planet. Most Westerns, Australia was 90, so not far behind. But you see the difference between how what I think is part of the problem is, is the culture is dictating how we view the church instead of the Bible dictating how we view the church. Instead of approaching it very individualistically, uh, in this case, you would have to say this. We're being more American than being Christian. And that's a problem. It's a problem for God. And, and so we have to get back and understand, hey, what, what is the, the context and the heart of God in Scripture for these type of things? Um, let me continue, though. Uh, the command to um, bear with one another. Uh, Think about this. In Colossians chapter 2, when he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint, even as Christ forgave you, you must also do. And then above all this, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, literally the, the perfect glue that will unify you uh, in God's, um, to live out God's purpose for us. And it says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called into one body and be thankful. Now, man, there's a ton to unpack here, but just a couple things. Have humility, kindness, meekness, and patience, bearing one another and forgiving one another. You know what bearing with one another means? It means to put up with one another's faults and frailties. It's like, man, I just don't like, the, I just don't like that guy, so I'm just going to go find another church. No, bear with one another. You see, God is teaching the world something about himself when we do that. But he's also teaching us something about himself when, he do, when we do that. When we can say, I'm going to put my immediate comfort and desires in a lower place than what God wants me to be and what God wants his church to be. We're saying something about God to the world. The girl, listen, no, nobody's impressed when people leave churches because they have conflict. Nobody's impressed by that. There's no one in the world saying, yeah, that makes, I mean, they might say, oh, that makes sense because that's the world in which they live. But at no point does that say something about God that transcends their own world, something higher and bigger and better. And isn't that what people really need to see? They don't need to see people that are just like them. They need to see people who, because they believe in Jesus Christ, have a transcendent wisdom and a transcendent worldview that sees something bigger and higher and something better why do you want more of the same of what you already have 
No, people want something transcendent. And when they see transcendent love and people being willing to get along with each other when it's not easy all the time, that says something. That's powerful. And so that's what he says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against each other, just as Jesus forgave you, you forgive them. Now that's transcendent. That's something bigger. And then he says, above all this, put on love. And be at peace and let God's rule. Literally, the idea is this. Let God's peace overrule in your hearts. I'm mad. Let God's peace overrule you. I don't want to forgive them. Let God's peace overrule you. It's literally saying this. God, I don't have the power to forgive. Because right now, I'm just angry. I'm hurt. I'm, I'm upset. I'm, I just want to lash out. And it's saying, but Holy Spirit, you've called me to peace. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give this to you. And I believe you can give me love for that person that, that overcomes my hurt. And God does it. I mean, we, we want to see God do miracles in our life, right? We want to see God do big things. You know, one of the biggest things is forgiving people. Just say, God, give me the power to forgive the person who's hurt me. And let me tell you something, watch God do it. Now, if you're expecting God to immediately take all of your anger out of your heart, that's not what he's going to do. Now, he may, he can do it, and sometimes he does. But more often than not, he helps us live out patience, kindness, humility. <laughs> he, you know how he overcomes that? By giving us new values that fill our hearts and minds so that we're able to, even in the midst of still being hurt, still being angry, God gives us the power to live beyond that and be kind and gentle and humble and all these things. That's a miracle. Is it really a miracle to say, God changed me, and all of a sudden, all the, all the hard feelings go away? So it's just really, well, that's easy. I, I feel great now. Or is it more powerful when every day you get up and you say, I'm still angry, but God, you're greater. God, I don't want to forgive, but God, you will give me the power to forgive. And watch God do it day after day after day until the healing happens. That's powerful. By the way, I think that's why God didn't allow the children of Israel to immediately conquer the land. They had to, every day, they had to go out into battle and say, God, the battle belongs to you. But they had to go out armed every single battle and trust God. That means every day, I mean, it would be great if God just instantly sanctified us so we didn't ever have a, a sinful thought or a struggle in our spiritual life. But he doesn't. You know what he does? He says, you go every day and you go, Arm yourself for battle, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. He goes, and then the battle belongs to the Lord. We, we get out there and we fight it and we slog it out and it's hard, but God gives us the victory time and time again. <clears throat> you know, when two or more sinners live in close proximity, there's going to be challenging times. I mean, you name it. And sometimes it's downright ugly. I mean, whether you're talking about marriage or family, roommates, churches, you name it. Listen, uh, when I was in Bible college, uh, for two years I lived on campus. And you think, here's a bunch of guys in a dorm who are all studying to go into the ministry. You're like, man, that is the most spiritual dorm ever. Do you know, we struggled at times. There was guys that just absolutely got on my nerves. I'm like, I will not room with that dude. And you know what? The truth is, is I was that dude for somebody else. <laughs> I had a roommate that was probably like, oh, Lord, deliver me. <laughs> deliver me from Jeremy. Deliver me from evil. <laughs> and and uh, I had growing to do. And, and you know what? Even with a bunch of guys that want to serve Jesus, it was challenging at times. Every time you get people together because we're sinners, we're going to have some challenges. But that's where God is glorified. When we put him above all of that and say, God is greater, I love you, we're going to reconcile, we're going to work this thing out. Uh, another reason, pastoral for qualifications to lead. Okay, it's interesting that one of the qualifications for pastors is that he lead his own home well. Now, why do you think that is? Well, he tells us, for if he cannot lead his own home, how can he lead the church of God? He's saying there's a direct correlation between um, 
a, a man being a leader in his home, his children at home, and bringing and, and leading them, discipling them, and then a group of people that are all gathering together. Why? Family. Family. There's a correlation. But not just that. We see more in that same vein. The leadership of elders. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 says this. Interesting. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, this isn't just saying every person who's a little older than you, because, uh, you know, you ever have that where you guys, I'm a, I'm a year older than you, you've got to submit to me. The Bible says so. <laughs> no. Uh, I was like, my sister, don't you try to say that to me just because you're older. You, you get to be the boss. No, no, no. Uh, no, but it's saying this. It says, all of you then be submissive to one another. And it's kind of like this. In a family, we all have to submit our own desires to one another because to make things work, that's what we have to do. We, have to, we all have to act in ways that fulfill the role in which God's given us to play and yet does so in a way that blesses all those around us. It's not like whoever's at the top of the chain gets to give all, out all the orders. No, the person who's the leader of the home, the, the dad, is to be the greatest servant. He is supposed to love and to give and to sacrifice for the sake of his family. And each person is seen. And then the Bible takes that same idea, that family dynamic, and says, hey, that's the way to ought to be in a church is that people are just submitting themselves to one another to whatever roles. And the elders here are not just older people, but the leaders of the church. And then he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, we see this, I think, a good example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, there's a very familiar family event. If you've been a, a parent, you know what, this, what he's talking about. So Paul's having to correct some sin issues in the church at Corinth. And he says this, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul said, I came and preached the gospel. So there's a sense in which, because I'm the one who discipled you, I'm a father figure to you. I'm showing you how to follow Jesus Christ, much like a dad would be showing his kids, uh, and even a mom would be showing the children how to behave and how to act, right? He says, for this reason, I sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved, and he used it again, and faithful son. You see, Paul trained Timothy, and Paul says, he's like a son to me. You see that family connection there? He's like, hey, I was like a father to you. Uh, Timothy's like a son, and I'm going to send him to you to help you in your spiritual growth. And then he talks about there's some that have been resisting Paul's instruction. And he goes on to say, now some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly. And if the Lord wills, and I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. He goes, there's a bunch of people that saying, ah, oh, Paul's a nobody. You don't have to listen to him. He goes, well, I'm going to show up and we're going to see what they say then. We're going to see if they're going to have just as much boldness. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And here he's talking about his apostolic authority to preach the word of God. I'm going to bring to you God's word. They're talking about their own opinions. I'm going to bring God's word to you. Then he says, but what do you want from me? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and in a spirit of gentleness? You can say, oh, Paul, you didn't. And he's like, oh, yes, I did. He said, should I come to you with a rod or a spirit of gentleness? This is kind of the picture. Dad's driving down the road. Kids are arguing in the back seat. Kids, stop. Kids, you need to stop. If I have to stop this car and come back there, you're going to be really sorry. How many of you experienced that? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, hey, don't make me come back there. Don't you make me stop this car. And in a sense, what Paul is saying is this. When he says a rod or in a spirit of gentleness, he goes, Guys, I've been telling you what you need to do, and you're not doing it. And there's some that say, we don't have to listen to Paul. And they're saying, and Paul ain't, Paul's too weak. He won't come here. He's too scared of us. He says, but I will come. And when I come, am I going to come with a rod of correction, or am I going to come in a spirit of gentleness? And you're thinking, is Paul really going to beat them? Not physically, <laughs> okay? He's talking about spiritually. He's like, when I come, there's going to be some real correction. He's like, but I don't want to do that. I want to come to you in a spirit of gentleness. What this is, it's not just a threat, it's a plea. I'm a father to you. 
I'm sending you my son Timothy, who I've trained. He's like a son to me. You guys are like sons to me. Please, please don't make me have to come there and discipline you. And if you, uh, parents understand this, there have been times where I was just weeping, wanting my children, please don't, please don't do that again. Please, we, we, we had some particularly challenging children. I won't tell you which ones. I think you already know who they are if, you, if you've met my children. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I love my kids. And, but there are some of them that were a little bit more stubborn. And there are times with just tears streaming down my face, I'm, I'm like, I'm praying, say, God, please let them just give in and stop disobeying. Please, I don't want to spank them. Please, God. And you understand what that's like. And, and Paul's like, please don't make me. But you see, this has a very family feel to it, doesn't it? Don't make me have to come and spank. I don't want to do that. And he's not going to physically spank them. He's going to spiritually correct them. But that's just the kind of the flavor of the New Testament. And then, um, and I got to hurry. Uh, the command, did I miss one? Can I, can I show it? Oh, yeah, the command for uh, pastors to oversee. So in Acts chapter 20, uh, the language he uses for pastors or elders, same, same office, says, take heed to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Uh, now, oftentimes in, in, in rich families, they had stewards who were over the kids until a certain point of time in their life, right? Uh, and so there is a sense in which Paul is saying, God, uh, or uh, in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, hey, when you pastor people, when you shepherd people, uh, God has called you to be an overseer to watch over the spiritual well-being of those people. And so there's a clearly defined, he goes, the, the people over which God has made you overseers. And so he uses the word of a shepherd, but he also uses the word of a person who would be in a family group and be in charge of the children. So there's this really family feel to it. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says something similarly. Shepherd the flock of God, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. So that makes Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 make a lot of sense. Obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account that they may do so with joy and not with grief, for this will be unprofitable for you. So here's the thing is, if there's no defined family, then why would he tell them you're responsible and accountable for every person that's you're overseeing? There is a defined, like a shepherd had a flock that was his. These were the sheep he was responsible for. Not every sheep in the world, but the sheep that God had entrusted to him, right? Or the, the shepherd had entrusted him, the great shepherd. Same thing, you're a shepherd over a particular group of people. There's a family group, there's a, a a defined, definite group of people over which I'm going to hold you accountable. And you're going to serve as an overseer, watching them as a family, as a, as a steward would over the family that, that's been entrusted. Uh, we would maybe use like the idea of a nanny or a, um, a child care worker who says, hey, these are the children you're, you're involved in watching over. So there is a defined group over which we all belong and which pastors have to give an account. One day I'll stand before God and he'll say, here's the people I entrusted to your care. How well did you care for them? He's not going to make me responsible for everyone in the world who's a Christian. He's going to make me responsible for a specific group of people. And that operates like a family. And then uh, lastly, the command to discipline. Again, this goes right along with what I just said. So Matthew chapter 18 Jesus, before the church is even birthed in Acts chapter 2, he says, if, you, if your brother has done something against you, you're to go and talk to them about it. He says, if they, won't hear, if they won't hear you, it says, then take two or three witnesses with you. And then he says, and if they won't hear you, still hear, then you're to bring it before the church. Now, again, the, the flavor here is this, not saying, hey, I'm going to get a group of people that's going to agree with me, and then we're going to attack you. Not at all. He's saying this. We're going to invite two or, two or three people to listen to our disagreement to see if they can help us reconcile. And they might say, well, here's some things you need to change. Here's some things you need to change. Confess this, confess this, and let's work this out, brothers and sisters. So it's pretty amazing. And he says, and yet if they won't still hear those two or three witnesses, bring it before the church. Now, that's what Jesus said. How did the apostles take what Jesus said to mean? How did they apply it? Well, you see it in Thessalonica, Corinth, and in Galatia. 
in, in, in Corinth, he says, those who are living sinful lives, uh, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he says, it's your responsibility to judge those inside the church, those who are considered brothers, but those who are in, Involve, uh, those who are involved in sin and considered brothers, it's your job to judge them and not to keep company with them. And then there's what we call church discipline. To apply the word of God so that it will cause them to reevaluate their actions and turn from sin and cling to Christ. Uh, those inside we call repentance. But then he says, but what have I to do to judge those who are on the outside? Now, these are not the language that I'm using. This is what Paul uses. Paul says there are people that are on the inside and on the outside of the kingdom. And it says those who are on the inside in that local church, it's your job, if they're straying from Christ, to lovingly shepherd them back. He says, but those on the outside, God judges. We have a particular responsibility to a group of people that are known as the brothers. And we would add sisters in Christ, right? So he says even church discipline as it's applied from what Jesus says in Matthew 18 means that we're identifying who's part of our family. Not everyone in even Higginsville are our responsibility, but there are some who clearly are our responsibilities. Now, this doesn't mean we don't love people who are not believers. Of course we do. I just like to call them future family. <laughs> uh, I don't have a responsibility necessarily to, uh, to call out their sin because they're not believers and they're not part of my fellowship. However, I want to tell them the gospel so they become part of the family, amen? And they enjoy all the blessings and all of the responsibilities that come with that. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. If a, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in the spirit of gentleness. It's a picture of a broken arm that's being set in a cast. It's a picture of a, of a fishing net that's been torn that has been sewn back together. It says, you restored them, and you set that bone, you sew back together that broken net, and so fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. That's part of the burdens we bear, is helping people, and when they're straying from Christ, we have to talk to them. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, says, We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition you have received from us. Yet don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I can't go into all the details of what was going on, but there are some people, Paul gave instruction, and they said, yeah, we're not doing it. He says, listen, you need to go and tell, talk to them and tell them they need to be obedient to God's word. He says, don't count him as a, an enemy, but he's, he's a brother. The whole picture is like, he's part of the family. If he's straying from the family, reconcile him back to the family. Work things out, man. Help him out. And so we see that's exactly how the New Testament church lived out the words of Jesus Christ. So for time's sake, I'm going to do this super quickly. So what, what can we do to apply this? Well, we should devote ourselves to one particular church family. There is a family that we ought to belong to, and we ought to serve and love and and give all that we can for the spiritual health for a spiritual family. We should love our family in action, not word. That's if you see your brother has need, don't just say be warmed and filled. Take action. Help him out. We need to work very hard toward family unity. That's Ephesians 4, endeavoring to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Jacob Crouch said this, In order to obey the one another's of Scripture, there is a closeness that is assumed among the people of God. We are known to one another well enough to enter into the joys and sorrows of one another. We are to be invested in one another's lives to the point we can bear one another's burdens. That's Galatians 6. Pray for one another and confess our sins to one another, James 5. We also must walk closely enough that we can encourage one another, Hebrews 3, and at times even rebuke each other, Luke chapter 17. We have to know each other and be enough part of each other's lives that we can make our true difference in their life. We have to be in this together. That means all the hard parts and all the awesome parts we share equally. And the fact is it's easy when things are easy. And it is hard when things are hard. But that's when it really matters. That's when we see what we're really committed 
to in, in regards to Jesus' ideal for the church. This is what Jesus wants. Are we really committed to his ideal or to ours? And we have to be willing to do the hard things, including having to confront when it's necessary. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, it says, withdraw from him who walks disorderly. There are sometimes we have to break fellowship over it. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't care about people outside of our fellowship. <laughs> and that's very important. I'm not saying the only thing we care about is our local assembly. No, this is where most of our love is going to happen because these are the people that we're going to know the best and invest in the most. But we care about people all across the world. When we meet brothers and sisters from all across the world, we rejoice in them. Uh, or all across Higginsville or Lafayette County, we still rejoice. We're not saying we're the only thing. We're just saying God's context for living out most of one another's is this immediate family that he's placed you in. And that's where you can do it best because you really understand the most. The hearts are the, the, the most um, understanding and devoted because you've bonded yourself together through uh, church membership. And so... This is how we can live it out. You've been so patient. I did get finished in two sermons. I just want to say that. It didn't take me three. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're very thankful uh, for people who bond themselves together in church uh, and, and a family. And God, we, we are thankful for the worldwide family of God, that we have brothers and sisters that we pray for, that we partner with. That's part of the reasons we're involved in missions, because we care about people all across the world, not just here in our own city God, we, we want people to hear about Jesus and join the family of God worldwide. But Lord, we also know that there's a particular context in which you've given us a really great way in order to live out these things. Not in theory, not with imaginary people, but with real people. Sometimes it's difficult, but boy, it's an amazing thing. And we believe you're glorified. And so God, we pray that we take all these thoughts that, that we've um, learned today and for, over the last two weeks and we would just really commit ourselves to both uh, the responsibility and the accountability of a local church and, and just say, you know what? We're going to plant our feet in a place. We're going to love and serve and forgive and reconcile and grow together and love each other and meet needs together. And it's just going to be awesome, challenging and awesome all at the same time. And Lord, as we do this, we believe that we'll be walking worthy of this calling the calling of the church, the gathered body of Jesus Christ. We want to live it out. Help us to do it in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here at Faith Baptist Church. And uh, I just want to say for all those who are visiting, you know, uh, my sermons aren't always this long. They are sometimes this long, but they're not always this long. You know, but I'm glad that you're here. Thank you for your patience. Have a wonderful afternoon. Uh, we're dismissed.